we are in Romans chapter 12. Uh, don't laugh that we're only doing verse 1. I mean, there's some, some verses, they're just incredibly important. Uh, and as Gene said, it's iconic. Uh, it's, it's just one of those verses that uh, everybody knows. Uh, and, and yet, um, you're excited to teach from it, but uh, you're, you have trepidation as well because it's been taught so many times, and, and then you realize how deep it really is when you get into it, and so uh, it, it's pretty fantastic, Romans 12, 1. Uh, we're calling the study Altar Bound. Um, as we get into it, we realize that God never condoned human sacrifice, but there are three examples of living sacrifices in the Bible. The first would be Isaac, who willingly put himself on the altar, and he would have died in obedience to God's will, but the Lord provided a ram to take his place. Jesus Christ is the perfect illustration of a living sacrifice because he actually died as a sacrifice in obedience to his Father's will. And then the third example would be you. You and I are called upon to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And so verse 1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This word, therefore, it's obviously an appeal to think back on everything that has proceeded in the book of Romans. It's a word also of application, telling us that what we've read previously should make a difference in how we approach living from this point on. I beseech you, not an expression of duty, but one of devotion. Paul was, after all, an apostle with authority from God. He could have commanded or demanded I mean, he was, uh, he was a guy, the, the, these first century apostles uh, in the previous vernacular of my generation, we would say they were heavy dudes. I mean, they, uh, they had God's authority, uh, but they didn't lord over people. In fact, Peter, uh, in one of his epistles says, the leader should not lord over the people. And so in this case, Paul, who could have commanded them, he said, no, I beseech you. I appeal to you as my fellow brethren. I'm your brother in Christ, and as brethren, uh, I appeal to you that this is what you ought to do. As J. Vernon McGee puts it, beseech is the language of grace, not law. Since we've been saved by grace, we are to walk in it. And so it wouldn't make sense for Paul to talk for... Uh, eight chapters, and uh, you know, there's that little parenthesis nine, eight, uh, nine, ten, and eleven, where he talks about the nation of Israel. But even there, it has grace in it. But it doesn't make sense for him to talk all about God's grace and then immediately get into commanding people, telling them exactly what they have to do, almost sounding legalistic. And so he says, "Look, I'm just begging you. I'm, I'm telling you that this is the way to live." And and this idea. Uh, of walking in grace includes how we teach others about walking with God too. It seems like, and maybe this, maybe you don't notice this or maybe this isn't true for you, but it seems like our default position is always to tell folks what to do. People have a problem or you're doing a Bible study, um, you know, some spiritual service, and you always want to tell people what to do. Uh, and sadly, we do this indirectly sometimes by pressuring folks or guilting them. 
And so, uh, we, you know, we, we, it's, it's, I found that it's really easy to make Christians feel bad. It really is. It, it, I would liken it to maybe, again, you won't get this illustration because it, I'm getting crazy in my old age, but I liken it to comedians. I remember, I think it was Red Skelton one time, wonderful comedian, used to come to Hanford, believe it or not. Remember when Red Skelton came to Hanford for the uh, hospital auxiliary or something? Anyway, I remember the interview in the paper, and they talked to him, and he said, it's easy to do off-color humor. And a lot of times comics will, if they're bombing and, and an audience isn't responding to them, they'll tell a dirty joke and it just kind of forces people to laugh. You know, you don't even want to laugh, do you? I know, you're, you don't have to admit to this, but you're around non-Christians all the time and they, maybe they forget you're a Christian or they don't care or they know you're a Christian and they're trying to get to you and all of a sudden they bust out some terrible off-color joke. And you know what? It's funny but you don't want to laugh, you know, do you? Because you feel, well, I'm a Christian, I, I really shouldn't laugh. And, and so there's just something about that. And Red Skelton said that it's so much harder to do clean, honest humor because you have to really think about that. And I think sometimes, uh, not that I would compare some, well, some sermons I've heard and I've given, I would compare to bad jokes. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes you just think, well, I, I have to tell people what to do. I, I need to make an impact. I have to get a response. I, I need to make people feel guilty so that they do something after all it's for their own good and just so much bible teaching really is uh putting it on you you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing for god i think it's better to tell folks what god has done for them and then let them respond out of love now you take a big risk there because some people you see it in personal relationships, they take advantage of love. They think, well, my husband loves me, my wife loves me, so I can slack off a little bit. You know, I, I don't have to always be, you know, on my A game because after all, you know, we love each other. And, and that's a sad way to approach love. Uh, but still, it doesn't make it wrong to just tell Christians, hey, this, this is what the Lord has done for you. And that's what really this verse is going to be all about. In a minute, he's going to talk about the mercies of God. And he says, because of the mercy of God towards you, this is what you ought to do. And there shouldn't be any question about it. I shouldn't even have to tell you is kind of the attitude that Paul has. He says in the first eight chapters, the mercies of God were on display for you. Paul explained how a holy God is able to justify believing sinners and impute Christ's righteousness to them and give them victory over sin. And you know, some of you, uh, you know, have mathematical minds and you can solve problems. And I always get amazed at all those, you know, those long computations that are all over the chalkboard and, and then people step back and then they go and they erase one little thing and they say, ah, there it is, you know, I've got it all figured out. And, um, it, you know, the, the, uh, the, I have no idea where I was going with that, but it's kind of a cool illustration. It'll come back to me in about five minutes. <laughs> it was going to be really rich, too. Uh, but anyway, so let's just move on. The mercies of God. Um, Christ imputing righteousness to them, give them victory over sin. And I thought it would come back, but it didn't. Anyway, so the mercies of God toward you, they become the foundation upon which you live out 
the Christian life. As we get further into chapter 12, we'll see how God's mercies lived out uh, uh, practically come into the responses like showing mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, he says, give to the saints, bless those who persecute you, weep with those who weep, associate with the lowly, repay no one evil for evil, never avenge yourselves. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And so the mercies of God, just thinking back on all that God has done for you, uh, and and it you know becomes that platform that foundation from which we just relate to the world. There's a spiritual gift for showing mercy, but every believer is called upon to be merciful. It's grounded in God's mercies towards you, and not just in the past. We sing from the Psalms that His mercies are new every morning. Even in our troubles, God is merciful. C.S. Lewis called them severe mercies, but to the extent that trouble and suffering work for us, they are mercies to embrace. Now, with God's wonderful, bountiful mercies in mind, we're told we should present our bodies. Present turns out to be a technical word that was used for the pre- symbolism for the Jew, but also for anyone in the first century who, would who was around the temple and understood Jewish issues. For example, this word would, would remind them of the continual activity from morning to evening as there was uh, offerings and scents and lamps and such being burned and wicks to be trimmed, all of this going on in the temple by the various priests who had their duties. I mean, it was a very active uh, sort of thing to be a priest in the temple. You didn't just sit around waiting for the next animal to be barbecued. I mean, you were, you were constantly moving, doing things. That's why uh, Spurgeon's commentary, Morning and Evening, uh, it, it's not just about reading it in the morning and reading it in the evening. It had to do with the fact that there were morning and evening sacrifices in the temple and lots of stuff going on in between. Uh, and so continual activity. It would emphasize another common teaching of the New Testament, that is the priesthood of all believers, not just a special few. It would remind that we are all ministers of the gospel of God's grace all of the time. By the way, this idea of the priest and his constant duties kind of clears up a huge debate among biblical scholars, at least it does for me. If you get deep into studying verse 1, you discover solid conservative evangelical scholars who insist that the presenting of your bodies is a one-time dedication to Jesus that puts you on a path to holiness. In other words, it's a crisis experience similar to salvation where you get to a point in your Christian walk where you say, I am once and for all dedicating myself to presenting my body a living sacrifice. And these are good guys. They're solid guys. Uh, there's nothing wrong with them. Others, though, just as conservative and evangelical, see this as not so much a crisis experience, but as a process. And based on the reference to the constant activity of the priest, I think it's best to see this presenting of ourselves as an ongoing process. Those who argue for one-time crisis say the word is in a verb tense, the aorist tense in Greek, that demands that we read it that way. But it's funny, the other scholars, who are also smart guys, say that the aorist uh, verb tense doesn't demand that at all. But why am I telling you this about obscure verb tenses that I don't even understand? Well, because sometimes you hear a Bible teacher say, this is in such and such tense, and therefore it can only mean such and such. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I've probably said that. 
Because you read it and you say, oh, well, this is, in a, this is in this particular weird verb tense that can only mean this one thing, so what I believe about this is correct. But then you'll have another scholar, not a, not a, you know, not a guy like me, but a scholar who comes along who knows languages and say, yeah, that's not always true. And you think about the English language and you think, yeah, who even understands the English language? You study all these rules and dangling participles and things. Always, that was always my favorite part of speech, the dangling participle. I always thought it was in trouble. <laughs> Just dangling there in the sentence. Well, somebody else, why can't the preposition help the dangling participle or whatever, you know? But, uh, you know, and, and so, so what I'm saying is you, can, you have to be a little bit more Berean and study things out for yourself and look more at the context. I'm not saying language isn't important. It's vital. It's critical. Otherwise, we make mistakes. But when somebody says this verb tense proves everything, uh, maybe, maybe not. And so just be careful about things like that. Now, by bodies, it's clear that Paul means all of you, every part, body, mind, and heart, and will. Just insert your name in place of bodies, and that's the idea that you would present Gene Pensiero as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Uh, that's the whole idea. And so whatever, whatever it, it, it means to be you, that, that's what you're presenting. And you're to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now we tend to immediately begin thinking of what we must sacrifice from our lives in order to please God. We immediately think we must do something to make ourselves holy and acceptable or that we must quit doing certain things because they have made us unholy and not acceptable. We start talking about the disciplines of the Christian life, about all night praying and rising so much earlier to have our devotions, about all the things we ought not do that smack of worldliness, those kinds of ideas. Paul wasn't suggesting that the mercies of God are only yours if and when you are holy enough to be found acceptable to God. If that were true, none of us would ever be able to honestly present ourselves. I mean, has there ever been a time in your life where you thought, okay, today's the day I have made myself holy and acceptable to God and I'm finally gonna present myself to him? Uh, no, because just thinking that makes you unholy and unacceptable to God because it's pride. Seriously, do you see yourself as the Pharisee in the Gospels who came into the temple thinking he was holy and acceptable to God because he fasted and prayed and tithed and then looked over at the tax collector and said, man, I'm glad I'm not like this sinner who was sitting there beating his breast asking for the mercies of God uh, and Jesus told us who was the more spiritual. So look at it this way. Nothing has been said yet about making yourself holy and acceptable to God. The exhortation here assumes you are already holy and acceptable to God. It's not something you must work at to become. It's something you already are. You already are holy and acceptable to God. You are also, in another sense, becoming holy and acceptable to God more and more on a daily basis. It's not double talk. It's the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification, it turns out, is both an act and a process. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified. You're set apart. You want proof of that? As you read through the New Testament, all believers, from the moment they come to know Christ, are called saints. The set-apart ones, the sanctified ones. Even some people who were way out there on the sin meter, like the Corinthians, he writes to the saints at Corinth. And so you are sanctified, set apart, 
declared holy and acceptable to God the moment that you receive Jesus Christ. There's also a daily process of sanctification. We learned earlier in Romans, we are predestined to become more and more like Jesus Christ. God who has begun this work in us, he will continue, it to, uh, continue to complete it day by day. And so we sometimes call this positional sanctification. My position is that of being holy and acceptable in the beloved. But practically, I have to work that out in my daily life as I cooperate with the Lord. And then, of course, there's also final or ultimate sanctification, what we sometimes call glorification, when we are no longer in this body and we've gone to be with Jesus and the Lord is finished with us and we awaken his likeness. Now, what we have mostly, I believe, in verse 1 is a reminder of the act of sanctification. Because of what God has done, we are already holy and acceptable, and therefore we can present our bodies to the Lord. More on that presentation in verse 2. Here we are simply told the presentation we make is our reasonable service, as if this verse wasn't tough enough already. He strings these two words together. And they are very hard to translate. Here are a few of the different renderings in different Bible versions. Spiritual service, spiritual worship, the sensible way to serve, the logical temple worship for you, your intelligent service, and the reasonable way for you to worship. I think the best way of understanding what is meant by reasonable service after I tried to really just you know, deal with words and come to a, an understanding of the words themselves. But I think the best way would be to see how the Bible's first two living sacrifices, Isaac and Jesus, were reasonable in their serving God when they presented themselves fully to the Lord, even to the point of death. Abraham, you remember, of course, told to offer Isaac. Isaac, no young boy, uh, he was a full-grown man, probably in his 30s. If you do the timeline, it's hard to get some of these timelines in the Old Testament, but he's at least 30. Uh, he's probably more like 33 because he goes on to be a type of Jesus Christ, and that's uh, around the age that Jesus died, but that's not essential. Uh, he didn't need to be subdued in order to get on the altar. Abraham didn't, you know, when, when Isaac said, hey, Dad, Here's the fire and the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham didn't say, oh, what's that? And hit him over the back of the head. <laughs> he didn't wake up bound and gagged on the altar so he couldn't yell for the two guys that got left behind. I mean, he, he started at some point. I mean, he didn't know until he got up there to Mount Moriah, but at some point he understood, okay, Dad, you know, I guess I'm the sacrifice. And he willingly uh, got on the altar. He presented himself a living sacrifice. Now, how can we say that Isaac's presentation of himself was his reasonable service to God? Well, for one thing, we're told in the Bible that Abraham reasoned, Hebrews eleven nineteen, that since Isaac was the child through which all God's promises would be fulfilled, then if he was sacrificed, God would have to raise him from the dead. In light of God's promises then, it was reasonable for Isaac to present himself a living sacrifice in obedience to God. He knew he'd be raised, or at least Abraham knew he'd be raised. And so what on the surface seems a weird, if not cruel, almost human sacrifice, it really becomes the best illustration the Old Testament people had of the future death and resurrection of their promised Savior. The more you study Isaac presenting himself, 
the more reasonable it appears to us as Christians. We see him as a type of Christ, as, as the newness of life, the resurrection, as a type of the faith of Abraham and all that. And you think, well, that actually, you know, what on the surface seems like a cruel, abusive situation is really, it's really the most reasonable service that Isaac could have rendered in giving himself. In a sense, Romans 12.1 is telling you to be like Isaac, to trust God with your very life based on what he has promised you. You and I are going to be raised one day. In the meantime, Romans chapters 1 through 8 explain that we can walk in the power of the resurrection. The only reasonable reaction is to serve God with all of our life, no matter the consequences or the cost. And so, you know, in a, it's kind of a, a bad paraphrase in a sense, not even really a paraphrase, but what Paul is saying is, hey, and based on what I've told you about God, the most reasonable thing for you to do is be an Isaac. And if you're called upon to sacrifice your life, go for it. Let's face it, while God may not be asking us to literally offer ourselves as human sacrifices, you only need to read the history of missions and martyrs to know that the consequences and the cost of obedience can, in fact, be life itself. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you have a suspicion that being a Christian might cost you your physical life, don't you? Maybe not in America, hopefully not in America, but uh, there's a lot of people throughout the history of the world, and even today, right now, being martyred for their faith. And so when you sign on and you say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was crucified for me and died and rose from the dead, and I want to walk in the power of that resurrection, there's a sneaking suspicion that you could be martyred and that yours might be a living sacrifice. Most Christians know about Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries being killed by the Aka Indians, a group of Ecuadorian indigenous people considered violent and dangerous to outsiders. Obviously not just considered that, but proven to be that. We love the famous Jim Elliott quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I've heard that three, four, five times a year my entire Christian life. And it's just powerful. You know, when, when before, you know, before he died and on his way down there to uh, offer, you know, the gospel to these, these people, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's sort of a martyr's creed. It smacks of presenting yourself a living sacrifice when called upon, knowing that it could lead to your physical death. So we get inspired by his words, by his life, by his ultimate presentation of himself. Then we get up from reading through Gates of Splendor, which is the literary account, or from watching End of the Spear, the movie based on uh, that account. And we immediately start becoming irritated at home, frustrated at work. We start pleading with the Lord to better our awful circumstances, when in reality we haven't gotten anywhere near the altar. So do you understand what I'm saying? So we say, you know, Lord, I want to present my life a living sacrifice. I, I, could, I know that that could make me like Jim Elliott one day. And then we don't see the, just the normal everyday area of our life as a place where we ought to lay down and be Christ-like. And, and, you know, because we have an idea that if we were called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice, we could do that. If, you know, if, if all of a sudden Russian paratrooper, if it was Red Dawn and Russian paratroopers landed right now in the alleyway. Remember Red Dawn? How many of you remember Red Dawn? Oh, great movie. I don't know if I should recommend it because I haven't seen it in like 25 years, but the Russians 
attack America through Cuba and they split the country in half and these kids are in the high school and they have windows behind them and you can see and they just, you know, they parachute in and they wipe out and they start shooting and these, it could have been filmed in Central Valley because all these kids had guns and trucks and rifles and they, they mounted a militia attack against the Russians and so, but, uh, you know, if, if that happened, you'd think, okay, I'd, I'd do it, I'd, mar- I'd be a martyr for Jesus Christ. But man, you don't know anything about living with my husband. My wife, really? The job I have, the people I'm around, God, you have to deliver me from this. I, you know, I can't take this anymore. And, and, and we, we're miss, I think that's where we're missing the point. It was infinitely reasonable for Jesus to present himself a living sacrifice. It's the only way lost men could be saved. In eternity past, the Son of God determined he would come as a man to die in our place in service to God. Now he's become the firstfruits of many brethren. Whosoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He can draw all men to himself. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. It may seem a big leap from Isaac and Jesus to you, but the truth is, anything and everything God asks you to submit to after you've presented yourself as a living sacrifice to him is reasonable. That's what Paul is saying. He says, just, this is what God's done for you. Present, you're holy and acceptable to him as a sacrifice because of the work of sanctification. Now on a daily basis, present yourself to him and die to yourself in these areas of your life. Knowing that you might be a martyr one day, probably you won't be uh, just bear your cross right where you're at. Looking back at Romans, you've been justified, you've been sanctified, now we're transitioning into you being sanctified day by day. God is doing it, but it requires your cooperation. In the military, and I want to be careful here, since I was never military, I was only threatened with military school uh, if, by my dad if I didn't, you know, and then I started thinking military school sounded pretty good to me, you know, but uh, I didn't understand, I guess. So, uh, I want to be careful, but I understand that there's a command, present arms, right? It's a m- method of salute. I jotted this down. It says, when armed with a rifle, the rifle is brought to the vertical muzzle up in front of center of the chest, trigger away from the body. The hands hold the stock close to the positions they would have if the rifle were being fired, though the trigger is not touched. So it's a, it's a salute. Present arms. If you're in the military and somebody says present arms, you know what to do and you do it and you better do it. Uh, and it's, it's a sign of respect and all of that. While, again, we need to be reminded that Paul was beseeching, not commanding, it was like him saying to us, present arms, present feet, present mouth, present eyes, present mind, present Gene Pensiero to me, and then I will tell you what to do. And then all you have to do is do it. And as you do that, you not only affect the world around you, but you go on being sanctified day by day, conform more into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.